Ecclesiastes chapter 6, our goals remain the same. In fact, they will remain the same. Just spoiler alert, I'm not going to add any new goals. At any time during this book study, these are the goals. And so we've gone over them, you've seen them, you've heard them, you probably see them in your sleep. Maybe not, maybe that's just me. But this is why we're studying the book. We, uh, we feel that this book has more value than we've maybe given it in the past, more purpose than maybe we've given it in the past. And we come across a, a passage like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that says all scripture is breathed out by God. And we think to ourselves, yes and amen. And maybe in the past we've said, except for Ecclesiastes, right? God, that one's just kind of an add-on. That's just thrown in there, but you just kind of want us to grin and bear it. Well, no, it's, it's part of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It's part of what God has for us to equip us uh, to be adequate for every good work. And certainly, man, that's what uh, we're wanting to do with our study and we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 6 uh, tonight, and as I was preparing for Ecclesiastes chapter 6, there was a song that kept coming to mind as I was reading this passage, and it's a song that Fernando Ortega took and, and adapted and tweaked the lyrics a little bit, but it's the song, Give Me Jesus. The original hymn was written back in the 1800s, and Fernando Ortega took it and, like I said, adapted it and repopularized it back in probably the early 2000s, maybe late 90s. But this song, Give Me Jesus, it has three verses to it that are very, very simple. It begins, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. And then it goes from there and it says, when I am alone, he repeats that, when I'm alone, when I am alone, give me Jesus. And then the song concludes, when I come to die, when I come to die, when I come to die, give me Jesus. And the chorus is that, it's give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. A simple song, but Man, if, if we will embrace that song as our life's desire, we will avoid so much heartache and turmoil in this life. If we will embrace that song as our heart's desire, we will come to see that we'll avoid so much of what Solomon was writing about, the, the travails, the, the turmoil, the, the toil without satisfaction, because we will know that, that in the end, all we really need and all we really want and, and everything that is enough for us in this life is Jesus. And Solomon didn't know that song when he was writing Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Solomon didn't know the name Jesus when he was writing Ecclesiastes chapter 6. But if we really kind of pay attention to what we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, at least these first nine verses, we'll find that it's going to have the same ring to our ears as that song does, Give Me Jesus. So grab your Bibles and open them up to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And let's just begin with the first two verses. Solomon writes, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing, nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. The word evil is found at the beginning of verse 1 and it's found at the end of verse 2. There's an evil that then in between these two words, evil is a description of a man we've already encountered in the book of Ecclesiastes if we've been paying attention. 
This is the man who appeared in Ecclesiastes 2.21 where it says, because sometimes a person has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill and yet he must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also, he says, is vanity and a great evil. We also have met this man already in the book in Ecclesiastes 4.4. Then I saw that all toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. And this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Or down in Ecclesiastes 4 verse 8 where it says this. It says one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's, there's no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. We've also seen this man in chapter 5, verse 13, where we read this, there's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, riches kept by their owner to his own hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture and is a father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. So Solomon is reintroducing us to this man who has worked and labored and he's worked for everything. And it says there that he, he has everything that his heart desires and yet he does not have the ability to enjoy it. And Solomon says, this is a, a grievous evil. He pursues wealth, possessions, and honor. The Lord gives him wealth, possessions, and honor, and yet he is unable to enjoy his wealth, his possessions, and his honor. And we've seen the litany of examples that have come before in this book. If you go back to chapter two, pick any of those categories that Solomon laid out for us and said, I chased this and it didn't satisfy, and I chased this and it didn't satisfy, and I, I, I chased this and it didn't satisfy. Solomon's kind of giving us a 30,000 foot summary a little bit here in chapter six. In fact, this is one of the final indictments in the book against this pursuit of things that won't satisfy us. From here, Solomon becomes to become, begins rather to become more proverbial in the way that he writes in chapter seven, eight, nine, 10, and then towards the, the end of the book as well. But this is kind of that final summation that he's giving us of, hey, this, is, this world is not gonna satisfy you. You can chase it all, you can have it all, and yet you can totally miss out on enjoying it all. There's something inherently evil about someone who lives their whole life pursuing satisfaction and wealth and riches and honor, and yet they're miserable for their entire life. There's something that feels wrong that even draws maybe our, our pity towards that individual. But Solomon uses this word grievous. It's a grievous evil. It's a word in the Hebrew, that means it's sickening. It's unsound. It's not right. One commentator paraphrased it. It's painful to watch. To see someone live their whole life chasing these things and to say, how, how unnerving is that? How sickening is that? How painful to watch is that? To see a man chase all these things and then at the end have it all but not be able to enjoy it. Why is that sickening? Why is that grievous? Well, it's only grievous if there's something much better that this person has missed out on. This is only sickening if there's something that is far superior that would have been the, the clear better option. Because if all there is out there is different things that they could have pursued, but the end is all gonna be vanity no matter what, then it's, it's really not grievous. It's just that this person's pursuing this vanity, this person's pursuing this vanity, and this person's pursuing this vanity. What makes this tragic, 
what makes this grievous is that Solomon knows that there is something better out there that this man that he has observed is missing. The picture Solomon is painting is grievous. And again, he's trying to capture the whole of chapter 2 through chapter 5, and and now he's summarizing it in chapter 6, saying, look, this pursuit of things to find satisfaction here on earth, and then you're not able to. It is a grievous evil. It's sickening. It's painful to watch. Why, Solomon? Why is it painful? And Solomon would say, because there's something so much better. And Solomon knew that something to be that there is a sovereign God before whom we will ultimately stand accountable. And we must live our lives before that sovereign God. And if we will understand that everything is a gift from him, we can enjoy our lives, right? We've been talking about those themes for the past few weeks, yes? But tonight, man, I want us to spin a little bit and pivot a little bit. And I want us to look at what Solomon is writing, but I want us to look at what Solomon is writing from the backside of the cross because I want us to consider what Solomon is saying from the perspective of our relationship with Jesus, And understand that there are so many things that this world offers us to say, you should live for this, live for this, have this, get this, gain this. But in the end, man, if we don't have Jesus, we have what? Nothing. Nothing. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Our first point tonight is this, man. Recognize the tragedy of a life lived without Christ. Recognize the tragedy of a life lived without Christ. Jesus. Again, Solomon wouldn't say it this way, right? But we can. Because we know that something that that Solomon only knew through the promises that weren't yet realized. Solomon had a a faith in God as the provider for the the righteousness that he needed, right? Abraham believed God and it was credited, credited to him as righteousness. Well, Solomon had that similar faith in God, but it was a a fuzzy faith because it didn't have the full realization of the promises. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, right in Hebrews chapter 11, at the very end, he says, look, we have something better than all of those in the hall of faith had because we have the realization of the cross. We know who Isaiah was writing about in Isaiah 53. We know who David was writing about in Psalm 22. We know the the cross. We know Jesus. We know substitutionary atonement. We know that we can repent from our sins and put our faith in Jesus' finished work, and we can be forgiven. And so I don't think it's too much of a stretch for us to say that that Solomon would agree that he was driving at a similar point here, though in in a fuzzy form, by saying there's a, a tragic end to those who don't cling to Jesus on this side of eternity. I mean, men, think for a moment of all the brilliant and successful minds in this world who have lived throughout history and never bowed the knee to Christ, and what a tragic loss that is. Think of the most loving and philanthropic people, millionaires who have given away more money than you or I will ever make, and yet they didn't know Jesus, and how tragic it is that really in the end their, their lives amount to nothing. Think of the the Buddhist monk who dies while chasing nirvana to realize that he didn't have Jesus and so he had nothing. Or think of the, the peaceful Hindu who dies chasing Atman is Brahman, right? Chasing oneness with the universe and he awakens into an eternity under the wrath of God realizing that he doesn't have 
Jesus. Or think of the atheist at your work or in your family who's cared well for his family yet dies without Jesus. There's a tragedy in a life that's lived without Christ, without Jesus. And in the context, Solomon is pointing to the the Fortune 500 CEO who never gets to enjoy what he's worked for. And he lives his whole life and he gains everything from a world's perspective. He has the wealth, he has the honor, he has the riches. There's nothing that he desires that he does not have and yet he's unable to enjoy it. And so he wastes his earthly life only to realize that he is gonna spend eternity apart from the Lord in the presence of his wrath. What did Jesus say? Again, we mentioned it last week. What is it a profit a man to gain the world but to what? Forfeit his soul. Man, as we read the Old Testament, as we're getting into and, and we're, we're fast approaching after we get through the, the judges and, and, and the other historical books, we're gonna come into the, the time of the kings and the nations. And, and even we've seen some of it already with the conquest of the promised land. It should be tragic to us what's taking place there, right? Think about 1 Kings 18 with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You all remember that story? When Elijah goes up on, onto the mountain there and he is, is calling for them to, to bring all of their, their sacrifices there and he's gonna sacrifice as well. And, and it's the scene where it, it, we, we laugh because there's some humor embedded in there when Elijah says, well, maybe your God is relieving himself. But at the same time, man, there's a, a tragicness to that scene. There's a, there's a sorrow we should feel in that scene. Because here you have all of those prophets of Baal who are crying out to a God who does not exist and gashing themselves, thinking that their pain is gonna somehow awaken this false God to hear them and to, to consume their offering. There's something that should be tragic about that. We need to be careful not to be contemptful towards those who don't have Jesus. What does Paul say when he talks about the armor of God? He says, our battle is not against what? It's not against flesh and blood, men. Our enemy is not the person. Our battle is against the spiritual forces that are at work in this present age. Our battle is against Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 who has blinded the eyes of the lost, right? It's the great line from the song, our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against who? The captor. And so as we look around our lives, we need to realize, men, that, that there is a tragedy to a life that is not lived with Jesus. At the end of verse one, it says that this is something that lies heavy on mankind. The New American Standard Bible translates that phrase, it is prevalent among men. men. The King James says it is common among men. And that's the idea here. When he says it's, it's heavy among mankind, it means that it's, it's, it's everywhere, that this is common. This idea of, uh, of chasing after anything but God in Solomon's vernacular, and we would say chasing after anything but, but Jesus in ours, it's, it's common in this world. It is unfortunately not rare. Pretty much anywhere you look right now, the, the religious landscape of our country is not trending in the right direction for us, is it? 
If you listen to Moeller, Moeller has been pounding the, the pulpit on this one for quite a while. The rise of the religious nuns, right? Those are the ones that, not nuns as in the habit, but nuns as in uh, no affiliation with anything. They're saying we don't want anything to do with religion at all. And if you think about all of the people that are making up that category and how that category is expanding and growing more with more uh, speed than, than any other really in this nation, it should break our hearts, man, when we realize the outcome of what that life is going to turn into. They can fill the Ivy Leagues and walk out the smartest men on campus and yet they will be bankrupt and they will be in an eternity without Christ and their degrees and their money and their tolerance will do nothing for them at that point. The nuns, the, the followers of Muhammad, the followers of Buddha, the followers of Hinduism, the followers of Mormonism, these will not lead anyone to Jesus. And so the question I have tonight for us, men, is this. When Solomon says this is a grievous evil, if Solomon and you were to stand outside your home and he were to look around and ask you, well, tell me about your neighbors across the street. Tell, about, tell me about your neighbors to your right and to your left. And as you began to tell him, would he say, wow, what a grievous evil is facing that man. If Solomon sat next to you in your cubicle and said, well, hey, tell me about the guy who works next to you. Tell me about your boss or tell me about your employees. Would, would Solomon say, wow, what a, what a grievous evil. Or if Solomon sat down at your dinner table, said, tell me about your wife. Tell me about your kids. Would he say, wow, what a grievous evil that they're living for anything but Jesus. Remember when men, what, what Solomon's doing here with the book of Ecclesiastes, I think is much the same as what he was doing with the book of Proverbs. And, and that is, I think he's writing it to his son from a, a human perspective to try to teach him to say, don't make the same mistakes that I made. And he's trying to warn us as well and saying, look, there is a grievous evil. And again, men, now that we have Christ, I have a feeling that if Solomon were in the room tonight, he would be saying, can we just stop what we're doing? And can you guys all go out and just find somebody who doesn't know Jesus and tell them the gospel tonight? Because that's the key. That's what's going to change things. That's what's going to undo this grievous evil is Jesus. He continues in verse three, pick back up and let's read down through verse six. It says this in verse three. He says, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over and yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Again, Solomon holds up an example for us in verses three through six. And it's an example that we have seen again before. This is the, the man who has uh, surrounded himself with his family. This is the man who lives for many years, longevity, longevity of life. And and yet at the end, the, the problem is the same. He's not satisfied. Why? Because, man, our family and our health is not meant to satisfy us. Even those two things cannot satisfy us. 
Our children don't last forever, and tragically, some don't live beyond even our own years. But even if they do, if it's a, a good situation, right? Your kids grow up, and what do they do? They leave. And you become, as our culture calls it, what, an empty nester. And so if your hope and your, your desire to be satisfied and to find happiness and joy, and, and then your kids leave, and then what do you do? You end up following them wherever they go. Well, we need to move over here. Why? Because that's where my kids and grandkids are, so I'm going to relocate. And you chase that, that, that satisfaction and fulfillment from family. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to live next to your family. I'm just saying some do that because that's where their ultimate meaning in life is or longevity of life. He says, look, even if you live 2,000 years, great. But guess what? Eventually you're going to die. You can't escape death. And he uses some strong language here in contrast to this man. He says this, he says in, in verses three through five there, he says, I say that a, a stillborn child is better off than he. Consider that, man. Solomon is saying a stillborn child is better than the man who lives 2,000 years and has 100 kids. Why? Well, he goes on. He says, because he comes in vanity and fleetingness. He's here and then he's gone. And he goes in darkness. And in darkness, its name is, is covered. In other words, there's, there's no one that's going to heap shame upon his name. There's nothing that can, can impugn his name because he hasn't had a name that's come to the light to, to be lived for many years at all. In verse five, moreover, the stillborn child has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. It finds rest rather than he. This man who's looking to family and this man who's looking to longevity of life, Solomon is saying the stillborn child is better because he's gonna find rest, whereas this man, just like the man who's chasing wealth and riches and sex and all the other things that are out there that may be more, uh, more morally deviant, He's saying, Solomon's saying, the, the, the problem's the same. You're not looking for satisfaction in the right place. And it's going to disappoint you. Your family will let you down and your health will eventually let you down. This is some of the strongest language that, that Solomon has used thus far in the book to say that a stillborn child is better off. But again, this is one of Solomon's final indictments against humanity for pursuing everything and anything except for God. And today our world does the same thing, right? It beckons us to pursue anything and everything in order to avoid having to deal with the reality that they need Jesus as their savior or they will face Jesus as their judge. And so our world immerses themselves in all kinds of, of idolatry, even, if I can put it this way, acceptable idolatry. But the reality is they have a final appointment with Jesus. And that final appointment with Jesus, men, is inescapable. Just like Solomon was saying, for this man who lives for 2,000 years, look, eventually, though, he's going to die. And then what? What good will his children do him after he's dead? Nothing. What good will his 2,000 years do him after he's dead? Nothing. And who's he going to stand before, according to the end of, of Ecclesiastes, when he's dead? God. Well, men, again, we have a little bit more of a developed understanding because we live on the backside of the cross with the completed canon. So we understand that the one that we are going to stand before at the great white, well, hopefully, if you're a believer, you won't be at the great white throne. But the one the world will stand before at the great white throne is Jesus as judge, yes? 
And so what we need to understand, men, what we need to hear, what we need to bear in mind, and I think what Solomon was driving at here, though not by name, but by concept, is that this, point number two, all men have an appointment with Jesus. We need to remember that, to remember that all men have an appointment with Jesus. So I can live my life and and have a hundred children and have my tables filled with grandchildren and all of the joys that come with family and yet eventually I'm gonna die and stand before Jesus. I can live for 2,000 years and be, you know, Billy Blanks and, and all of the, the, the top health people, I don't even know who the modern ones are anymore, all the, the Peloton riders, right? I can look like all of them and I can live for 2,000 years and be in the best shape of my life, but I'm still eventually going to die and I'm gonna stand before Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says what? It's, it's appointed for man to what? Die once and then comes judgment. That's for everybody, men. And the thing that we need to be aware of and beware of, we need to be aware of these things in others' lives and beware of them in our own lives, and that is that there are respectable idols that we can pursue and, and be deceived into thinking that they're okay just because they're not some of the moral vices that are out there that are worse idols. And I think Solomon's putting his finger on a couple of those in these verses, and that is family and health. I think there are a lot of Christians in the church that worship at the altar of family and health. And we think it's okay because it's not pornography. We think it's okay because it's not alcohol. We think it's okay because it's not money. We think it's okay because it's not fill in the blank with whatever your favorite vice is, right? We think it's okay because it's more acceptable. Some of these are, as I've already mentioned, family, health, but some more intellect can be one of these. Or culture slash enlightenment. Trying to be, uh, to keep up with the culture around us. And we're seeing a lot of that invade the church these days. Wanting to be liked by the world. Wanting to be somebody who is, is considered enlightened by the world. Or how about this one? To be tolerant. By the world's standards is an acceptable idol see the world men may be able to wag their fingers at the workaholic or, or the alcoholic perhaps, but they're going to still stand and applaud the family man, aren't they? And they're going to applaud the, the gym rat, the guy who wants to be healthy, and they're going to applaud the bookworm, and certainly they're going to applaud the tolerant phil- philanthropist. They're going to say, yes, this is a good thing, but see, here's the, the reality. As, as we live for the applause of the world, as we chase all of those things, if we never reckon ourselves with Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then all of those things are not going to do us any good in the end because we're going to stand before Jesus at that appointment that all of us have. See, man, is is family a good thing? Yes. Should you love your family? Absolutely. Should you spend time with your family? Yes, you should. How about health? Is it good to, to steward your physical body that the Lord has given you and take care of your body? Yes, absolutely it is. Those are good things. Those are fine things. Is it good to stimulate our mind and to pursue knowledge? Yes, absolutely. That's a good thing, right? But as we've already touched on before in the book, man, if we pursue good things as an ultimate thing, they become a bad thing. They become an idol. If we pursue family for the sake of family and not as a gift from the Lord that's a stewardship of God, right? Then it's an idol and it's a bad thing. 
if we pursue our health as an ultimate thing rather than what it is, which is a gift from the Lord to be stewarded to use our bodies better and longer in service of him, then it becomes a bad thing. It becomes an idol. It challenges the Lord's place in our heart. And we need to let go because the risk we run, if we live for all of these things, for what they are in and of themselves, we never realize that we need to reckon ourselves first with Jesus before all of that. Then our appointment with the great white throne is set in stone and that is what we will all face and nothing that we've lived for is gonna do us any good at that point. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter two? Right after the kenosis passage where Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of flesh, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? That, that great passage. And then what does it say? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is what? Above all names. In order that at the name of Jesus, what's going to happen, men? Every knee will bow. bow. Yep. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Has that day happened yet? No. But will that day happen? Yes. That is an appointment that every knee and every tongue has with Jesus. In our world wants us to think about anything but that day. And so our world has a, a smorgasbord of idols for us for every inclination that you might have, including if you're morally upright and taking shelter in the church. Idols like our family and our health and our intellect. But man, we need to understand that those things can't save And the reason why Solomon says that this is vanity and the reason why the stillborn is better off than this man is because this man never finds the rest that he's looking for. The the family can't satisfy. The years can't satisfy. Why? Because in the end, they were never meant to satisfy us. And when we have our appointment before God, when we stand before Jesus at the great white throne, if we're not in Christ, those things can't do us any good. And so, men, I would ask again, if Solomon was to stand next to you on your driveway and look at your neighbors and say, hey, they've got an appointment with Jesus at some point. Is that going to be the great white throne or the Bema seat? How would you answer him? If he was to look at your coworkers and ask about your coworker in the cubicle next to you, your boss, your employees, and say, hey, they've all got an appointment with Jesus. Is that going to be as savior or is that going to be as judge? How would you answer him? If Solomon was to sit at your dinner table and point at your wife and your kids and say, they've all got an appointment with Jesus, is that appointment going to be a savior or judge? How would you answer? He continues in verse seven. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Again, men, think of chapter six. Solomon's kind of summarizing so much of where he's already been. For what advantage, verse eight, has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. 
This sounds a lot like Ephesians 5, or Ephesians, Ecclesiastes 5.10 that we read about last week, right? For the person who loves money, money will not what? Satisfy. And the one who loves wealth and, and income, that's also not going to what? Satisfy. Solomon says here, he says, look, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. You're working to feed your appetite, but your appetite is never satisfied. He says, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? When this life is lived in constant pursuit of the unattainable, which is satisfaction here under the sun, right? There's no advantage to being wise over being the fool. Why? Because death is the ultimate arbiter for both. Death is the brick wall that the wise and fool both alike run headlong into. And then that ushers us into the presence of Jesus, either as savior or as judge. And Solomon is saying there's no advantage then. There's no advantage. Or the poor man, he says, you know what, don't, don't go the other direction and think that it's, it's somehow holier or better to have nothing and, and to, to be more uh, intellectual or to be more wise and, and yet be poor. He says, even there, what advantage does that person have who, who knows how to conduct himself, who knows how to navigate this life, in other words? He's saying, look, if, he, if he's living for the wrong things, there is still, there's, there's no advantage here. He says, it's, it's vanity, it's chasing the wind. And then he says this, again, back in verse nine, he says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. I love that line. And I need that tattooed on the back of my eyelids sometimes. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Why? Because the wandering of the appetite is also vanity and striving after the wind. Solomon is saying, you know what's key in this life, men? It's a, it's a word called contentment. Contentment. Better is the sight of the eyes. Better is what you see in front of you, right? Better is what you have than the wandering of the appetite, entertaining the dreams and the fantasies and the thoughts about what you don't have. There's a, a phrase that is proverbial even today in, in, in our own culture, and that is what? Better is a bird in the hand than two in the bush, Picking up on Solomonic wisdom there. See, man, our appetites are always going to beg for more. That's what an appetite is, yes? But true wisdom is found in, in realizing that more is not always better than what you have. In fact, true contentment can be found in the sight of the eyes. In other words, in realizing the value of what you already have have, and nowhere is this more true than in your relationship with Jesus. Your relationship with Jesus. Our final point tonight is this, man. Fight to believe that Jesus is enough. Fight to believe that Jesus is enough. If someone were to ask you tonight, what is your greatest need that you have tonight? How, what, what would you say to them? And then how would you respond if they met that need, how grateful would you be? My guess is it would depend on two things. Number one, how great your need is. And number two, how great the sacrifice would be on, that, on part, the part of that person to, to meet that need. Let me give you an example of how that might differ. If my greatest need tonight is I need gas money to get home. 
and Elon Musk shows up and gives me 20 bucks to go down the, the street and get a tank of gas. That's nice. I don't know why I keep going back to Elon Musk. I'm wondering maybe he's going to listen to one of these someday, just Googling his name and it's going to pop up somehow. <laughs> we'll save him and get him using his money for the, the kingdom, right? But if he were to show up and give me 20 bucks to go put a, a tank of gas in my car with our current presidential administration, that'll fill up about a quarter tank. So that'll get me, you know, home. That's going to be nice. And I would say thank you. And I would appreciate that. But in the back of my mind, I'm also thinking to myself, man, 20 bucks for that guy is what? Nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. But if, on the other hand, if a widow came up to me who I, I knew didn't have much, and she came up to me and said, Pastor PJ, I know that right now you need some money to be able to make it home. Here, I, I've got $10. I, I hope this will get you enough to get home. The weight of that $10 is going to feel so much more significant than the $20, isn't it? Jesus even kind of made that point, didn't he? When he condemned the, the, the self-righteous giving of the Pharisees, and the widow who goes up and drops her mite into the box. And he says, look, this, this woman has given so much more because she's not given out of her abundance, but she's given out of what little she has. Right? It's the, the sacrifice. And so we would appreciate that, right? Well, man, if we think about our greatest need, in fact, if we think about every man's greatest need in this world, what is it? Salvation. And what was the cost for our salvation? Jesus. Anything less than Jesus. And we could look at God and say, okay, but you're the, you're the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. This was a drop in the bucket for you to save me. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, who died for us? Christ. Jesus, his son. On the cross, under the full weight of the wrath, the just anger of God against our sin. Man, if that widow gives me that $10 and I go down the street and I fill up my tank with gas, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be conserving every drop of that gas and trying to make it stretch as long as I can because I know the sacrifice that went into providing that for me. And I'm going to be grateful every time I get in that car. I'm going to think about her and I'm going to think about her gift. And I'm going to be grateful and I'm going to be satisfied. And I'm going to think, man, this is so awesome. I'm not going to sit there and think, man, why couldn't she have given me 20 bucks? Why couldn't she have given me 30 bucks? Why not $40? I said, man, what she gave was so immensely valuable. Man, what God has given to us through Jesus was so immensely valuable valuable. How satisfied are we with the provision of Christ? Not that we're never going to have any other needs, but men, are your appetites, are our appetites, are they wandering? Are they telling us that, that Jesus really isn't fully enough for me to be content are they betraying that we don't really agree with Paul's statement in Philippians when he, he says, look, I've learned the secret of living with much and I've learned the secret of living with, with little. It's contentment knowing that Jesus is what? Enough for me. 
Let's consider Jesus for a moment if we can, men. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's, ponder that statement for a moment. In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. Some translations say you have been made complete in him. How about Hebrews 1.3? Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.30. And because of him, because of, of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. You are in Jesus, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So men, in Jesus, you have the, the wisdom of God, you have righteousness, you have sanctification, and you have redemption. Is that enough? 2 Corinthians 12, 9. We know this, this passage, right? Paul is praying for the thorn to be removed, and the Lord says no, and it, then we read this in verse 9. But he said to me, what my grace is, Sufficient for you. For my power, Paul, is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I'm going to boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. So, man, even when we don't have what we feel that we need, even when we're praying and the Lord is not giving, we need to be mindful that we have Christ. Colossians 2, 3. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How much of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ? All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 John 2, 2. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he has satisfied God's wrath against our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Is Jesus enough? 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul's writing to Timothy and says, Look, Timothy, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in who? Christ Jesus. That we have the Bible, and the Bible teaches us about Jesus, and through faith in Jesus we can have salvation. Is, is Jesus enough for us? And then one more, Paul in Philippians 4.13, when he says, What I can do, how much? I can do all things. Through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Men, are you, are you content with Jesus? And I use the word fight, men, because it is a fight. Because the world in which we live in is a world where the, the, the world and its system and, and Satan and his demons have rolled out the red carpet for our fleshly appetites, hasn't it? And not only that, but Satan has given his demons and his demons have given our flesh, right? A megaphone that's hardwired into our mind on a daily basis with all of the sinful desires that we want, that we feel like will make us happy, that we need, that we don't have, that we feel like we deserve. What did Paul say? I do what? I, I discipline my body and keep it under control. Some translations, what I discipline my body, I make it my slave. Lest after preaching 
to others, I myself should be disqualified. Men, we have to daily fight to keep our gaze on Jesus. Daily fight to remember that Jesus is enough, that he's better, men, than ill-gotten gain, that he's better than our deviant sexual desires, that he's better than our covetous hoarding, that he's better than the top of the corporate ladder, no matter where we are to, uh, to, to forfeit all of those things. We need to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, right, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Look, here's my earthly resume. Here's all of the things that I might boast in. I'm going to crumple it up and throw it in the garbage bin because it's all worthless in light of the surpassing value of knowing who? Jesus. Paul, is Jesus enough for you? Did you not hear me, he would say. Take it all. In fact, please take my life because to depart and be with him is far what? Better. I want to be with Jesus. I don't want to be here. Are we that content in Christ, man? The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us daily lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, which what does it want us to do? It wants us to take our eyes off of who? Jesus, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Men, are your eyes fixed on Jesus or are they wandering to worthless things? Because, men, here's the thing. Once we take our eyes off Jesus, wherever they land, they're going to land somewhere that will not satisfy us. And that's what Solomon is saying here in chapter six. We need to be content in Jesus because it's tragic to live our whole lives pursuing anything other than Jesus and to die without Jesus because we will die without Jesus, but if we die without Jesus, we will still meet Jesus, but we're gonna meet him as our judge, not as our savior. So men, we must fight, we must battle to be satisfied in Jesus. I think Solomon would have loved Fernando Ortega's song. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Let's pray. God, give us Jesus contentment in Christ, a greater love for Jesus. Lord, doctrine's not our problem as much here, at least in this circle. But a love for Christ. To wake up tomorrow morning, God, and spend time in your word, not just because it's something that we're supposed to do because we went through partners or because we've got a, an accountability partner who's going to ask me, hey, did you spend time in, in the word? But to spend time in your word because we love Jesus. God, to obey your word because we love Jesus. To make that appointment with that boss, that coworker, that neighbor, that, that family member that, that doesn't know him in order to sit down and plead with them, implore with them, as Paul says, to be reconciled to Jesus. Why? Because we we're supposed to, because it's obedient. Yes, but more importantly, because we love Jesus and we want them to love Jesus as well. 
God, satisfy us with Christ. Help us to take an inventory of our lives and to say, what in my life, God, robs me of my affections of Jesus? What in my life gets in the way of my affections for Jesus? I, I want to get rid of that, Lord. And help us to take inventory of our lives and say, what in my life stirs my affections for, for Jesus, makes me love Jesus more? And God, I want to feel more of that in my life. I want to be a, a brother in Christ who helps others love Jesus more. And I want brothers in my life who help me love Jesus more. Paul was right, God. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And it's more than a t-shirt. It's more than a memory verse. It's true, God. Help us to embrace that truth and to live it out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.